0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, we are kicking off a two-parter on advice columns, which might seem excessive. How on earth could these
1: women talk about advice columns for two podcasts? I have no idea. I mean, it's not like there's a long history or anything, is there?
0: There is. <laughs> Tell me. Surprise, surprise. Advice columns said a hidden history that we were unaware
1: of. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the 17th century. Who knew? Some guy in the 17th century had a problem, and he was like, well, I'm too embarrassed to talk about it, so I'm just going to start an advice column in a newspaper. Funny how that happens.
0: And that problem was that one Mr. John Dunton, who was a London bookseller, was having an affair.
1: Yeah, and someone of his social standing couldn't just go around talking about it. So in 1690, Dunton starts the Athenian Mercury. And he doesn't just start the Athenian Mercury. He, He also creates a society. And basically the society is made up of quote-unquote experts, and I say quote-unquote because they weren't all real. They didn't all exist. And it was basically just a group
0: of Dunton's friends who would get together in a local coffee shop and talk about people's problems what advice they would give them because they would have people write in in the in the same format as mm-hmm. we think of today with advice columns they would read the letters they would answer the letters and they were published in yes the Athenian Mercury but can I can I Tell our listeners its full name. Hit me
1: with the full name. Because
0: it was an entire uh, publication. It wasn't just one column that ran, say, in a newspaper at the time. Although, of course, that would come out of this. So get a load of this. In 1690, Dunton starts, and I'm sure this must have been a lot for the the printer at the time, (laughs) the Athenian Gazette, colon, or Casuistical Mercury, resolving all the most nice and curious questions proposed by the ingenious...
1: Of either sex. See, they were equal opportunity. Yes. Even then, women women folk could write in. But yeah, I think it's incredible. I mean, people, there must have been a real thirst for this kind of thing, being able to ask questions anonymously, uh, because he and his society answered more than 6,000 questions during the paper's 10-year run. And, you know, so we have this anonymous factor right off the bat that people are able to send in their questions, anything from political, to environmental, to love and sex and all that stuff. Yeah. And you can imagine
0: that this must have been a godsend at the time because in 1690, communication was so limited. I mean, we were such a far cry from having the Internet with Google where we can just go on there and ask whatever we want. Um But can we talk about a couple of the original questions? Yeah,
1: there was one that was really pressing. Very important. And and today it might even, it might even, you know, strike a chord with some people. And that, that question is, why is horse poop square?
0: Why is horse poop square? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wish that I had the exact wording with me, but it was essentially saying horses, butts all around. Oh, yeah. But their poop
1: is square. Here's, here's, uh, here's the answer. They are formed quadrilang- quadrilangularly in the rectum by protension and compression upon one another as any other round or oblong substances which are soft would be if they were thrust together. As answering the hard-hitting questions from day one. Can you get more poetic
0: about <laughs> horse poop? I don't think so. I submit that you cannot. But in the same publication, when they're asking about horse poop, and we're like, ha, 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 oh, those seventeenth century fools—they're asking questions that are still asked today mm-hmm. in advice columns, such as whether it is lawful for two unmarried persons, each consenting to cohabit, etc., since marriage was a thing set up by man. Essentially, can—is uh, it cool if we live in sin together? Can we shack up? Yeah, and that be a okay.
1: Yeah, but I also like, I mean, I, I read some of the other questions that were very superstitious in nature. Like, one guy asking, you know, why are frogs and ravens and, you know, other animals considered evil? Like, why are they such bad luck? And and they do, they offer very common sense answers to some of these questions. Like, or maybe you're just noticing them when you're having a bad time. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: John Dunnton had a bit of a a bit of a sassy attitude, which is right. something too that we see throughout the history of advice columnists, especially as it becomes this regular thing that pops up in newspapers. But before we fast forward too much, uh, we should mention that in these first, advice columns these first advice publications they were largely run by men uh, for instance in 1704 we have daniel defoe the author of robinson crusoe who came across Dunton's column and he wrote his own essays about manners and moralities under the identity of the scandalous club prompting more than 40 letters a week from readers and i think did he did he get on board with the athenian
1: mercury I don't think so. I think he was running his own thing.
0: Yeah, cause it became a pretty, a pretty hot thing to do. Yeah. Among these thinkers at the time. Because it was also a time when people were really starting to exchange ideas. The idea right. of, you know, salons, people getting together to, to talk about different issues that were coming up.
1: Yeah, these early advice columns that were run by newspaper publishers and editors, because I guess back then you could just, like, wake up in the morning and decide to start a newspaper. But the aspirations were really larger than just talking about relationships or marriage or sex questions, things like that. Or, you know, even things that we would think of as, as our more modern you know, advice column topics. And just like Kristen said, a lot of it had to do with bringing people together. So this is coming from David Gunalunis' book, Confidential to America, Newspaper Advice Columns and Sexual Education. He talks about how in the 17th and 18th century, the advice column was really solidified in urban London. This is a time when citizens were searching for a common channel to share information and engage in debates in a quickly modernizing environment. There was no Internet. There were only these newspapers and pamphlets and things that people could Publish their problems in, and then read responses. And it was a way not only to get advice, or maybe you know glean advice from somebody else's problem, but also find out what's going on in your own community. Yeah, this gave people a platform to address
0: their community. Um, he calls it the quote mobilization of the public sphere. And people were pretty active with writing into newspapers. And while this also facilitated letters to the editor, which we still have today in newspapers and magazines and even websites as well Uh, but then there were some that that weren't that wouldn't necessarily fit into letters to the editor because they didn't deal directly with something that the publication had printed so then you have those excess pieces becoming more fodder for advice columns.
1: Yeah, well, this definitely was not just happening in Europe, and London. This was also happening in early America, where Benjamin Franklin offered practical advice through his character, Silence Do Good, because you can't use your real name in these advice columns. Yeah, that is another thing from
0: the, the get-go, is mm-hmm. we really love the idea of writing to this anonymous persona.
1: Because it makes them seem maybe bigger more all knowing and able to help if if they're not just thought of as some schmuck from down the street answering right. questions from their living room in their pajamas
0: yeah because you know a john dunton bookseller who is having a trouble with an affair right. is not quite as alluring as oh the the This Mercury
1: Athenian person. Mm. <laughs> oh, a society is answering my question? He, know- mean- <laughs> he knows why horses poop square. <laughs> he must be smart. Well, no, yeah, I do think it's interesting that he, to solidify his... You know, his reason for answering these questions, his authority, he ends up inventing all of these people. Like, we have a, a German and a Dutchman and a Spaniard and an Englishman and a priest, educators. Like, he said all of these different people were in his society, just so you would feel, I guess, like they had the authority to to an- answer questions. Of course, yeah, we want expert right. advice. Well, moving forward, past Benjamin Franklin into, you know, the turn of the century, the first U.S. general advice column launches in the New York Evening Journal at the turn of the century. And character advice columns hung around well into the 20th century. Yeah, for instance, one of the the popular character advice
0: columns that pops up around this time is uh, in in the San Francisco Examiner the the Dinkelspiel answers some letters column which was a forum for German humor (laughs) at the time so I bet it was very funny
1: (laughs) yeah well I mean you have all these you have all these groups of people coming to America sure. and, and they're looking for a connection just like we said you know the advice column was not just you know can I live with someone before marriage why do horses poop square it was it was really a way to connect with your community yeah and so if you felt like you were homesick for Germany you could turn to Dinkelspiel you could
0: read the Dinkelspiel. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Advice column historians have also
0: called out a Bintel brief, which started in 1906. And it was launched in the newspaper, the Jewish Daily Forward. And it was really part of the birth of the modern columns. And it was such a good example of what you're talking about in terms of uh, having a an expert voice in terms of assimilation of Mm -hmm. learning how to how to navigate this brave new world.
1: It was also uh, one of the few modern columns written by a man, because at this point, you know, as we'll we'll go back to some early pioneers of, of women written advice columns. But this, uh, the Bintel brief drew on the tradition of wise men rather than the mother confessor, which we'll talk about. Um, but, you know, a lot of Jewish immigrants would have in their native countries turned to a rabbi or someone else in their community to seek advice. So this advice column was just kind of the written version of that, turning to a wise man to answer these questions about how do I adjust to life in America. But once
0: advice columns really get going in terms of seeing them not only just in the major newspapers but also in magazines and specifically women's magazines. They become... This feature that is a voice by and for women in a lot of ways,
1: yeah. in october twenty twelve, Jessica Weisberg wrote a a really informative story that was kind of a jumping off point for me to do this this research uh, for The New Yorker. She says that the traditional advice column was designed to be playful, and that the modern advice column has really emerged as a figure who wrote mainly. For female audiences and encourage propriety, manners, and practicality. So these columnists were really kind of enforcing social rules and helping readers decide what was required of them.
0: Yeah, if you look at these advice columns that start really in the Victorian era women's magazines and trace them up through today, you can chart women's history in a lot of
1: ways, mm-hmm. because
0: they first start out in women's magazines really sticking to matters of the domestic sphere, how to raise your kids, how to tight lace corsets, when braziers came in, <laughs> braziers, when bras came into fashion and women stopped wearing corsets. That was a big thing that was taken up in these advice columns of mm-hmm. saying, is this okay? Um, and it was a lot of telling women how to live. And then as feminism starts to come in and gender roles begin to change, you see the nature of the columns looking at more uh, interpretive things of whether or not it's okay to live your life in in certain ways. Not just how to do things, but why are we doing certain things.
1: Yeah, and there's the quote, uh, the advice column is a site of sexuality discourse did not emerge until women rescued the format from male editors and publishers. So just like you're saying, As society moves along and we are more open with our talk of sexuality and gender and all this stuff, the advice columns move with it. And one of the reasons that
0: women staked such a huge claim in advice columns is because in the 19th century, not surprisingly, and even today, female journalists were relegated to social reporting with topics such as abolition, temperance, and the suffrage movement. And as the female readership grew the newspapers of the time said, hey, you know uh, what, uh, ladies like to read lady writers, so right. we should bring them on and have them write these advice columns, see? which
1: Yes, which in a British accent is the thought process in Downton Abbey when Lady Edith goes to write a column. Exactly. Bringing it all back, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Um, And thanks to the
0: yellow journalism wars between Hearst and Pulitzer, we have the emergence of the Saab sisters, who were these female reporters that were sent out to Give an emotional spin on news stories of the time, and also female columnists, the the advice columnists of the era. Yeah, in uh,
1: 1894, Pulitzer's World newspaper launched one of the first women's pages, and by 1900, most papers had one. And looking at that 1900 census of the thirty over thirty thousand journalists in the United States. 2,193 were women. And so it's around this time that they're like, like Kristen said, okay, well maybe, maybe it is good business to have more women writers on staff. But aside from the sob sisters, you know, who were out there writing important long stories, they were emotional. They wasn't so much hard-hitting female journalists.
0: Right. But nevertheless, those women's pages were such boons Mm -hmm. to these newspaper empires because advertisers loved them. It's the same story that we see today in terms of the value of women to advertisers because we're doing all the shopping. And it's funny, we don't see women's pages necessarily in large publications like the New York Times today, but what is it? It's the style section. Yeah. It's still the same, you know, it's similar versions of... of of the same old thing. But one of the big names to come out of all this was Elizabeth Merriweather Gilmer, whose name you might not have heard of, but you might have heard of her pseudonym, Dorothy Dix.
1: Yeah, Dix and or Gilmer, uh, got her start, actually, to support her mentally ill husband. This was at the end of the 19th century. And, yeah, she was one of the four original Sob sisters who included Ada Patterson, who was a Hearst journalist, Nixola Greeley-Smith, who was a writer for the New York Evening World, and Winifred Black, a.k.a. Annie Laurie. And Dix is an interesting figure. She um, wasn't a very happy marriage, as you can imagine, and she really just pushed forward. She went after this career, uh, started out, you know, writing tales of murder and crime and all this stuff before making all of her wealth and fame through her column. Yeah, listeners
0: in New Orleans, she gets her first advice column at the Times-Picune in New Orleans because the editor... Is all like, hey, you're a lady. These columns written by ladies with advice—that's a good idea. And Dorothy Dix was like, okay, I'll do that. And fun fact: she picked her pseudonym Dorothy Dix because apparently alliteration was very fashionable at the time in names. Hmm. So, Chris and Conga, maybe I should have an advice columnist. There you go. I have no, I have no alliteration. Caroline Curvin. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, But her first column that she launched in the Times-Picayune was called Sunday Salad, which I very much enjoy. And she became known as the Mother Confessor to Millions because her column became widely syndicated and people loved
1: her advice. Yeah. By 1940, this is mind-blowing, by 1940... Dorothy Dix Talks, her column, was published in 273 newspapers with an estimated worldwide readership of 60 million.
0: Yeah, some sample titles, just to get an idea of what Dix wrote about, was Are You Good Company to Yourself? So, which sounds like to, something you would read today about dating yourself. Mm-hmm. Keeping Young. Yep, we're still, we're still reading about that. And Our Lives Are What We Make of Them, which is essentially every inspirational poster summed up into one advice column. And she was hugely famous. I mean, you mentioned all of the newspaper syndications and her readership, but uh, in 1928, New Orleans also started Dorothy Dix Day. There were popular songs about her. Uh, there, there was even an incident when she traveled to Japan, and when she got off the train, she was bombarded by a group of Japanese Girl Scouts <laughs> who were so pumped to meet her. And there were even Dorothy Dick's imposters out there trying to capitalize on her name and as this is going on just on a side note for lit fans out there in 1933 Nathaniel West publishes Miss Lonely Hearts which was a popular novel at the time about a newspaper advice columnist who was get this Caroline a dude what it was hilarious but also kind of sad
1: now going back across the ocean to where we first started This was going on in the UK too, but they weren't called sob sisters, they were called agony ants, which I think, I don't know, that sounds, to me that sounds awful. Yes it does. I just picture them like there's much gnashing of teeth and tearing of hair.
0: Well, there were. I mean, in, in British papers at the time, there was a column on the front page of every edition, which was the problem page. Mm-hmm. And people loved it. And it, uh, it turned into the advice column where these women, the agony ants, would, would write about it. And maybe British listeners can fill us in on this because it does seem like a, a very negative nickname. I think they them. still use it though. Yeah, the United States was simply taking a cue from Britain in a lot of ways with advice columns, because, uh, for instance, this is coming from Never Kiss a Man in a Canoe, Words of Wisdom from the Golden Age of Agony Ants by Tanith Carey, uh, who writes that by the 1740s, the popularity of Mrs. Eliza Haywood, who was a romantic novelist and editor of the Female Spectator, and Frances Moore, who was editor of the Old Maid magazine, which, Caroline, I think you and I should really revive, established the tradition of advice columns as a primarily female preserve. So this was already happening over there and Carrie says that the golden age of the agony ants and the problem pages starts in the mid to late 19th century which was coinciding with rising literacy rates and popular journalism. Yeah, so you see that, these two things happening in tandem.
1: Right. So at the same time that Dorothy Dix is over there getting really popular with mm-hmm. all of her writing in New Orleans this stuff is going on in England. And you know speaking of Dorothy Dix Dix through, like as part of the framework of her time, you know, the time in which she was writing, she did in her own way campaign through her columns for women's education and right to employment. You know, she herself was not in a very happy marriage, but she still believed in traditional values and all of these things. And so she used her column to advocate for the proposed 19th Amendment and for women's right to go work outside the home, support the family. Yeah, even though at the, at the time she was
0: in favor of the institution of marriage. She was very frank about her own marriage and kind of how she did it because it was the thing to do. And there was a column that she published called The Ordinary Women. And it reminded me a lot of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique because while she wasn't saying drop your brooms and get out of the house, women, she was saying that there needed to be greater recognition of the value of women's work which was a pretty powerful statement at the time. And even though in the women's magazines, the Victorian-era women's magazines, it might not seem so revolutionary telling women how to... Uh, set tables and ignore their kids (laughs) and please their husbands and all of that. In more mainstream publication, the agony aunts and uncles and the advice columnists in the U.S. were often liberal voices like Dick's, especially in terms of women's roles. So even though their voices were relegated often to women's pages, and we might think of advice columns as these silly little things, you know, that we kind of read for entertainment, The voice of these women was nevertheless very powerful at the time.
1: Right. A history of uh, these advice columns in the Daily Mail from February 2011 talks about how a lot of these more modern columns ended the silence, so to speak. It really brought ordinary women's problems and secrets into the open, helping readers know that they weren't alone. So not only are they dealing with problems that maybe you wouldn't hear talked about on the street in public, you know, it's it's really bringing to the forefront, oh, other people are dealing with this, too. This isn't just a shameful secret that I have to deal with. Right. Even in those Victorian problem
0: pages, as Tanith Carey writes about, um, a lot of the questions were full of women seeking to decipher romantic signals from men because they couldn't openly talk to them at the time. And then looking at Dorothy Dix's career... Her column spans 50 years worth of social changes. So, in the beginning of her column, women are writing and asking whether or not she should marry this man who, you know, is a good fit. You know, and she's—that's yeah, what she should do, right? Whereas by the end of it, women are asking and saying, "Hey, is it okay if I like go off on a romantic weekend with this dude? He's not my husband, but yeah, that'd be cool, right?" And her just being like, "Well." Ah. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it, it really stopped being about morality and the advice columnist, uh, dictating morals and all that stuff. Because in the 1970s, as we're moving along, you know, society's moving along in their views of feminine, feminism and sexuality. There was more of like a sympathetic tone, not like you should do this because it's right for society. It was more like, OK, here's what you're dealing with. Let's talk about it. And so these advice columnists started tackling the big issues of sex, birth control, abortion, all of these things that were otherwise delicate topics. Yeah, you can see how in advice columns, the personal
0: is becoming Political talking about sex, birth control, abortion, rape, aging. I believe it was Marjorie Proops, one of the leading agony ants over in Britain, and perhaps our British listeners can correct me. But she, for instance, in the 1970s, publicly advocated for um, rape victims to be treated a lot better if they were going into, say, uh, the police department to report a crime um, and in hospitals actually set up rape suites where uh, they could have the the rape kits carried out in more comfortable surroundings. Um, also, Peggy Makins, who is another popular agony aunt, talked about how in the 1950s when she started out, she could not use the
1: word bottom, even if it referred to something innocent.
0: Right. As in the the bottom of the drawer. Right contains papers uh, because of course papers and drawers comes up a lot in advice <laughs> columns uh, but she, yeah she couldn't use bottom at all but then uh, you know 20 years later she's talking about sex and everything starts to really open up and of course by the 1970s and 80s advice columns are not just in newspapers you have sex columns popping up in places like penthouse um, and you know people are it is opening up dialogues
1: yeah, because the advice column, you know, as we've touched on, the advice column has traditionally been kind of a safe space. It's anonymous. You're writing to somebody with, you know, an illiterate alliterative name. Uh, so it's 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 safer. You can write in something that's that's more sensitive. And OK, so hundreds of years ago, that might have been a question of politics or horse poop but now moving forward it's more like okay no no let's let's get real let's talk about sex abortion politics all these things and throughout all of this time it's facilitating dialogue
0: mm-hmm because A, you're finding out that, and, and this is something that we hear from listeners of the podcast as well, you're finding out that, oh, other people are wondering these exact same things that I am. So mm-hmm. there's a sense of community, there's a sense of validation, especially if we're talking about women's issues in quotes, and, uh, there's a sense that it is okay to, to think about and to talk about what might seem taboo and break down those barriers. Mm-hmm. In that way, so so, where does that leave us with part one of advice columns? Talked about the the women, the female crusaders who came in,
1: mm-hmm. and and how men started it because because they, they were having affairs. They were too proper to be able to talk about their affairs in public,
0: and then then women come in. So next up in our part two of advice columns. We get more modern because what what's the world to do now that we have the Internet? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, A, that we have more advice columns, I would argue, than ever before. Um, but there was, uh, we got to talk about a pair of sisters, twin sisters, who really changed things advice-wise in the United States. Yeah. So tune in for that. It's coming up next <laughs> on Stuff Mom Never Told You. But in the meantime, send us your letters on advice columns. Or if you would like to ask advice from us, we'll be your stand in agony, ants. Sure. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your emails. Well, we've got a couple of letters here in response to our Vaginoplasty, vaginal rejuvenation, designer vagina episode. And these two are intentionally from male listeners because we have heard a lot from the fellows on this episode. And it's all, it's pretty, it's pretty good stuff, women, in terms of guys above, across the board saying, no, don't, please don't do that. But anyway, Nathan has a little bit of a different perspective on this. He writes, As usual, I enjoyed your latest podcast. It brought up a few moments of introspection, which I think is always beneficial. One of those moments was when I remembered something from the bowels of the Internet called a glanzectomy. I realized that circumcision is effectively a hoodectomy, referring to a clitoral hoodectomy, on a male. Personal info. I'm a male who is circumcised. I had my first son circumcised. I didn't have my second son circumcised. The part of this that is weird to me is the turmoil involved in that decision making. I had no problem with my first son being circumcised, but with my second, I feel that I struggled for weeks over it. Why is it totally acceptable to have this cosmetic surgery done to a newborn baby, but not go against the norm? In the media, the only scandal around circumcision appears to be the possibility of a rabbi with herpes using his mouth to clean the wound. Yikes. So, this is what I ask. Should we be surprised women and girls are doing something about their irrational fear of a deformed vagina when it is millennia-old behavior to say a penis is shaped wrong? I am going to respond briefly to that by saying that cosmetic surgery for labiaplasty and vaginal rejuvenation tightening of the vagina largely for the sexual pleasure of another person is vastly different from male circumcision. I know that that could raise some controversy among some people because there are a lot of folks these days saying that male circumcision just as wrong Mm -hmm. as female circumcision. But, uh, and and yes, there are nerve endings in the foreskin that that do reduce sexual pleasure in a way, but a hoodectomy um, is far different physically than a clipping of the foreskin and i think that uh it's indicative the rise of vaginal rejuvenation is indicative of a far different problem Mm -hmm. than something that grew out of cleanliness standards in a religion right and not just in judaism
1: yeah Yeah, I
0: totally agree with you. So I think we're in apples and oranges territory. but That's all I'll say about it now. I'd be curious to hear, though, from other listeners about that. Is comparing vaginoplasty to male circumcision accurate at all? Yeah, that's my two cents.
1: (laughs) Well, Sean wanted to add his two cents also to the designer vagina discussion. He says that as someone who does not have a vagina of his very own, I can say that the vast majority of men are happy to be in the vicinity of a friendly vagina no matter how it looks. That man should say, hooray, a vagina, pleased to meet you. If that man says, you have a strange looking vagina, he should be immediately deprived of that vagina interaction and be made to be on his best behavior during future vagina interactions. Overall, genitalia looks strange, both male and female. Any attempt to make them cute or pretty is going to end in unnecessary medical procedures. And that just made me think of a penis with a tiny top hat on it.
0: (laughs) So, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da! Hey, it's the tap-dancing testicles! (laughs) So, thank you, Sean, for that wonderful image in my head. And to all of you who have written into MomStuffAtDiscovery.com, of course, you can send us a note on Facebook, like us there while you're at it. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Stuff Podcast. And if you are a Tumblrer, we're on there as well. Stuff Mom Never Told And of course, as always, if you want to get smarter this week, you should head to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.